we're not saying that this is a more magic formula that you do these things, you know, automatically have an intimate walk with God. We're saying these are obstacles that routinely and commonly get in people's way. And if you find yourself striving and striving and not getting anywhere, it, you might want to look and see if you're actually dealing with the, uh, the proper obstacles that are in the way. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollos Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. Welcome back. This week is part two of my conversation with Marcus Warner. Last week, we introduced Marcus's new book, A Deeper Walk, and even touched on the book he's writing now. We looked at how, for many people, something is missing from their Christian walk, how growth, freedom, and victory have often proven elusive. We dealt with the realities of the spiritual realm and how sometimes spiritual warfare is a very real part of the things that are blocking us. This week, the conversation continues. How do we create idols in our lives without knowing it? Could we be wasting our energy fighting the wrong enemy? How knowing true things and even having accountability aren't enough because not everything is about the will and a whole lot more. We start this discussion off in India, travel to our own backyards, go back into church history, and end up looking at how contemporary models of discipleship are often flawed. You're going to want to stay tuned, though, through the very end, because some of his best stuff, really where you get Marcus's heartbeat, really shines through there. Happy listening. You mentioned giving legal permission. I, I want to talk about that for a moment, because I, I, I have a real question with that. In our culture today, we're a very litigious society. We're built on legal understanding of terminology. We look at the scripture in a great way through that lens, especially Romans, and, and, and rightly so, because he's talking about justification by faith alone, and you talk about that within the book. Some societies, though, are not very legal in their understanding of permission and authority. And I know we're both familiar with India, and we've worked with India before. That's not their, their go-to in this. Is that more difficult for people coming from backgrounds like that to understand that ter terminology? Or do you even use that terminology? Do you adapt something else that's more familiar to them and their understanding of it? Yeah, that's a, uh, you know, that's a, it's a perfect question, right? And it, because these things are universal or they're not. And the, and the little bit of, uh, I actually did a spiritual warfare conference in India several years ago. And the re reaction was, thank you for clearing this up. Hmm. Right. So it was not a uh, it was not a well, that's not how we understand it. OK, it was more like, OK, this suddenly makes sense of why we're running into this problem and that problem and this problem and that problem, because they were taking sometimes people Christians said the only thing they've ever seen is shamanism. Then they assume that what we're doing is Christian shamanism because they have no other category for what they're doing. But it's not Christian shamanism. We're actually doing authority, the application of authority. And, so, and everybody understands law at some level, right? They all understand that there are consequences that the, the authorities can, you know, 
can give to them. And so I'll just go back to that, that witch doctor interview I referenced before, right? And that was that a, another, a, a witch doctor had put a curse on his dad and killed him. The mother's reaction was to pay for this guy to be trained as a witch doctor to kill the witch doctor who killed her husband, right? Sounds so, logical. Sounds logical, right? Sounds okay. logical, sure. Right. So here he is as a teenager. He is apprenticing to uh, a shaman, and he's gone as far as he can. And the, he asked the guy, so how do I kill my enemy? He goes, that's beyond me. You're going to have to go to somebody else. And so he starts going to the dark side, right, into the dark magic side of this and to the point where he told me he was literally would go into trances where demons would just teach him right and uh he said he committed human sacrifice he committed committed other things like this and you think that's rare there's a bbc article from uganda about 10 years ago saying that they that the police had uncovered 900 cases of human sacrifice most of them by businesses businesses yeah, because they were they wanted the power to defeat their enemies in the marketplace, and they wanted protection from curse because they're cursing each other left and right over here, and they and they wanted the protection that came, and they were literally finding properties where body parts were buried in the corners of these fields from from human sacrifice. So this is not an archaic, random thing we're talking about here. It's just that it's 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 kind of one of those we don't talk about that things, but it's a um so anyway that I'm, I'm getting into the really deep end of the pool here and i don't probably not the best place to go but it's it's the the point was that even this guy got free this witch doctor got free when i met him he was in seminary hmm. how, how did he get free right he had to confess what had given permission to the enemy in his life he had to do something to cancel that permission which is repentance you know forgiving the man who killed his father right he had to renounces a lot of different things he participated in and then he needed help commanding these things to go because he had um he had given them so much you know such an open door in his life he needed some help so he said it took two sessions but uh that i mean he was smiling the whole time he was telling me this story right he's like you know the love of god was in him he was going to be a minister and but that was just where his journey started so what i found so far is that uh, the legal concept has helped to bring clarity, not contradiction in those things. Mm. Um, it's okay for us to be in the deep end of the pool. All right. so I've, I got flippers. All right. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay for us to be in the deep end of the pool. Um, it's easy for those in the West to look at missionary encounters such as that, or let's call them missionary encounters, just for the sake sure. of our argument for where we're coming from. And to talk about shamans and witch doctors and permission and idolatry and things like that. The idolatry though in the West, though people may not think it there is idolatry, we both know that there is. It takes just slightly different form. Um, I like how one man put it. He said, they're good things that become God things and then they become bad things, simply put. Yeah. Um, the idols that we see people opening up themselves to within, I mean, even the occult, we talk about the occult today and people get ideas of pictures of witches and that kind of thing, but it's much more incipient than that. As this younger generation of digital natives starts to grow up and it's really grown up around this, this entertainment culture in which we find ourselves, how has idolatry changed its manifestation 
leading to demonization in our culture today? I think uh, that's a huge, right? That's a huge Boom! topic. That's right? it. It's huge. That's the next book after that, right? Yeah, that's there you go. Great. It's like, okay. There we go. That's the next book after that. Yeah, maybe we can write that one together. They have a, we have a, Let's do it. <laughs> it's a, uh, uh, it, you know, like uh, McDonald's is giving out tarot cards as their happy meals, right? The uh, what? Yeah, you didn't know to hear about this. The uh, no. there was a yeah, there was a um, McDonald's. Yeah, I mean, and well, it, my wife already said it wasn't healthy. Now we got we got. I'm just food. saying that it, <laughs> when we're talking about the mainstreaming of these things, oh, let me explain paganism in a nutshell here quickly, and that is, uh, if you think of uh, all right, the pyramid of masonry. Mm-hmm. All right. And then the idea is you can be inside that or you can be outside that. So using Harry Potter terms, right? And muggles are outside, right? And, and then okay. you've got to go through some sort of initiation process to get on the inside. And then once you get inside, you apprentice to a master who's going to help you learn your craft and go up level after level after level. So we've all been thoroughly introduced to this by Harry Potter. We've all been thoroughly introduced to this you know, and over and over again. The, uh, the, the occult view of culture has become the norm for our children's programming. So what we have here now is this idea that I need some sort of initiation in order to be enlightened so that I'm blind and then I get my eyes opened. And now that my eyes are opened, I want to learn my craft. That's why it's called witchcraft and go up these these levels um, by submitting to a, uh, you know, somebody who has mastered the craft so that I could become a master. And that's what happened with this witch doctor. He was doing this. He was, you know, he went from an outsider to an insider through an initiation. He was going up and he got as far as his master could take him. So he switched masters so he could go up to higher one. We see it in Star Wars, right? We see it in, uh, you know, all, all, all over the place. It's becoming, you know, the normal worldview foundation for our kids. Uh so yeah, there's a huge, huge problem here. And so idolatry, if you define idolatry as the worship of false gods or spirit beings other than and, and than Jesus, then anything that's wrapped up in this kind of occult system or pagan system is going to be a form of idolatry. And uh, so I look at it this way. I, I, I go to idols for two main reasons. One is I want secret knowledge or I want secret power. So... Uh, for instance, like in the Bible, Saul went to the witch of Endor to get secret knowledge. I need to knowledge, right? Uh, sometimes uh, there was a king of Moab, I believe, who sacrificed his firstborn son on a wall in one of the battles. Why? Because he wanted the power that that human sacrifice was going to bring down the spiritual power. And people look at that and go, wow, isn't that crazy superstition? And I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. It's like there are these things give permission to higher level spirits to get more actively engaged in stuff that's going on. And that there's, you know, that's why we read articles about 900 human sacrifice cases in one African country. This is why we find that, uh, um, I mean, there's probably not a state park you can go to that hasn't had occult rituals done in them someplace, right? You've got... And, 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 you know, we get into this in leadership because I do some corporate leadership training, too. They don't ask me about spiritual warfare generally. But the, <laughs> in the uh, but one of the things we find in there, they're, they're recommending if you're doing a, an interview with a millennial, uh, the best way to do the I, best icebreaker is ask them their sign because they're like 90 percent of millennials check their horoscope every day. 
I'm not saying they, I don't even know if the, how seriously they take it, but they're doing it is the point. It's like, they all know their sign. They all know, and, and I, I'm picking on millennials, but I mean that, and I, I will tell you, I haven't done the research on this to back it up. I'm just telling you what I heard in a leadership presentation was this was the advice that was given in a leadership presentation was okay. good icebreaker because, and they said 90% of them check their horoscope every day. So that well, that, nature abhors a vacuum, right? If you don't yeah. have biblical truth, then you're going to find something to to satisfy the spiritual nature, because that's why you have everybody today. I'm 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 spiritual, not religious, right? And I, I have nothing to do. It's like you want that aspect of it on your terms, in the way that well, is to fit, and it's just not biblical truth at all. It's a lie. So, well, you know, you like cultural worldview stuff, right? So you you appreciate that one of the at the one of the big worldview culture things is, is there one human race or two? Which sounds weird, but it's like, there's the elect and the non-elect in a sense. It's like, are there are those who are God's children? And there are those who are in the Bible called the children of the devil. Mm-hmm. Now we don't like talk about that, but one of the things we're, we're at odds here is that people are saying we, that humanity is the foundational thing and the unification of humanity is the ultimate goal. Uh, whereas Christians are like, we acknowledge that there are good and there are bad and there are enemies and they're, they're in and they're out, but we love everybody. And so the question is, and so Christians are perceived as bad because we don't believe everybody is in. Mm. And, uh, and yet the worldview of Christianity is that we are to love those who are in and we are also to love those who are out and we are to be good to those who are, who are not in and we are to be kind to those who are not in. Whereas people, what's happened is now people are saying, well, if you don't believe that we're all in, then you're the bad guy and we don't have to be good to you. And so we can now be mean to you. And it's like, it's it, so you see one worldview actually is fomenting hatred in the name of unity. And the other one is accused of fomenting hatred. But if you follow it out logically, it's quite the opposite. But there is a fundamental thing here about, you know, how many you know, are we all sons and daughters of God and we just have to remember it, Unitarianism? You know, or is there actually a is there actually a divide here that has to be bridged? And again, it's not a very popular concept, but I think it's one of the reasons why there is such a why we are such odds with our current culture. We're gonna take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Water, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water that's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLT Bibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today because understanding the Bible changes everything. And the NLT is the Bible you can understand. <laughs> we just want to have a fun conversation. That's why I understand. So we're just... uh, okay. I, I, I want to go back. Uh, let, let's talk more. 
Um, let's actually talk about the demonic just here for a moment, because you mentioned uh, this in the book, which when you said that most evangelicals talk about the demonic in terms of like in the metaphorical or figurative sense, and you've tried to bring it back to an understanding of the literal sense. Why do we need to have that literal sense of the demonic? Well, a simple answer is that you know, if you've got a demonic problem, only a spiritual warfare solution will work. And so if you're fighting windmills instead of fighting demons, that's not going to work. Fighting windmills? Well, you know. The analogy. <laughs> it's like a new one. Fighting windmills. That sounds like some type of bad mascot. Yeah, yeah. Or well, the fighting windmills. Is that Don Quixote or uh, what, is, what is that guy who was out? Oh, yeah, Don Quixote. It's got the windmill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. I was kind of reaching there, but that's the idea. It's like a... It's, it's shadow boxing. And there's there's a mm. lot of people who are wasting a lot of energy fighting a battle against the wrong enemy. And again, this is not a question of does the flesh create problems or not, all right? That's not even really on the table. We all know the flesh creates problems. The flesh is, you know, a huge part of this. It's a, it's a core part of the model is that we have flesh that we're trying to overcome. Our point here is that that battle just gets way harder if there are demons involved and I ignore them. Is the demonic involved institutionally? Sure. So, um, <laughs> quick answer. Yes. Yeah, there you go. Okay, that's it. No. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I actually teach uh, kind of RIP, rest in peace, right? And that is that you have regional, you have institutional, and you have personal. You're uh, the level. king of the acronyms, by the way. <laughs> yeah. You're the acronym king. <laughs> it is the... Which I love, which I love, but my buddy's like, how many acronyms does he? I'm like, but you remember them? You yeah, remember I know, them? man. I don't it's the, know what uh, they stand for, but trying to get the 365 day calendar going here soon. But <laughs> I have a <laughs> the 365 day calendar of acronyms. That's yeah, exactly. So <laughs> it's a yeah. It, honestly, the habit started when I was in seminary and I had all these essay tests. And I, you know, so to get ready for the essay test, I always came up with an, an acronym so I could remember what the points were I needed to spit back on this test. And so let's go back through here. So re, let's just start regionally, institutionally, people. So we've been talking about people up until now. How do people give permission to spirits? How would an institution give permission to, to, to demons to be present? Well, let's just start with an obvious one. If a business pays for human sacrifice. <laughs> okay, that's a big one. All right, that's a big one. So I mean, sometimes you have to use the obvious just to show that it's possible. Because now then you break it back down and now you're going down to, so what, what level does give permission? And that's where it gets fuzzy because I can't sit here and say, this will always do it, that will always do it, this will always do it, that will always do it. So that's why we do things like testing spirits and see what's going on here. But I know, um, like when I was in Ireland, I uh, met with a guy and he had a business partner who was into a, a, a pagan uh, thing. And so we walked through, we cleansed his office and at literally kind of drew a line down the middle of his office, like this half of it is clean. Now, you know, it's like, you not nothing allowed here. And he said within three months, his whole business turned around and uh, he, he won some national award and, and he credits it to what we went in and, and did in clearing that out. Um, I never heard what happened to his business partner, but he was doing a completely different thing in a different, uh, a different business altogether. They just shared an office, but I, I can tell you school teachers, you know, who have 
cleansed their room and prayed for a hedge of protection around their rooms who've seen behavior get better in their classrooms, bus drivers, you know, people like this. So when you get into institutions, the question is, are the, the leaders of an institution doing things that invite demons in? For example, like you've been in, you know, and we talked about India before, you've seen a lot of the taxis, you know, they got little idols all over the cab. Oh, yeah. All right. So if I've got a, if I'm running a business and I dedicate, literally dedicated that business to an idol, then that institution <laughs> has given permission to demons to be there. So I think the question here is really, what does it mean for a demon to be present? Because I don't think it, it means that a demon is living inside of me all of the time. I think what it means is that it has access to play, play with me more than it would. And uh, they don't play nice games, right? So it's, so let, let's take this into a, a, a again the Western context because you mentioned the human sacrifices, and and it's been said that the human sacrifice today that at the altar of our own modernity in our culture abortion is is probably the, one of the biggest one. I mean it's really sacrificing their children for something else that they deem to be much more important, whether it's a significant choice, career, money, finances, stress, whatever it might be. Now we see some institutions after the Roe v. Wade verdict say that they would pay for their their staff those to go get the abortion to, yeah. to get the abortion so are we saying that is opening that up to demonic activity well again that's what i'm saying this is a gray area what i'm saying okay. is that things like that there's no bible verse i can point to say yeah that'll do it but it is a what the but what i would say is that it is something worth looking into whereas most people wouldn't even look into it or wouldn't even consider it i'm saying yeah that's that's a valid thing to explore to see if there's really something there um, I will also say, like Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar's court, you can be a Christian in a very pagan place, and it doesn't mean you're going to get them, but it does mean you're going to have to fight against stuff you don't normally have to fight against. I mean, how many missionary stories have we heard of uh, missionaries have gone someplace and felt like a 500-pound gorilla landed on them that was invisible, and they couldn't breathe, and they were... You know, and partly because no one had ever prepped them for the spiritual warfare they were about to walk into because of the region they were going to. And that is that the region they were going to was so heavily infested with demonic entities who had permission to be there. And so the analogy I sometimes give, I got another, I told you really like 15 books. I got one on spiritual warfare, okay, whatever believers should know about spiritual warfare. And one of the things to talk about in there is the, uh, is they take a country like Moab. So if the king of Moab and its rulers decide we want Chemosh, right, to be our provider and our protector. And they build a temple to Chemosh. And then they uh, set up altars in high places all over Moab to offer sacrifices to him, specifically inviting this spirit to come and to live in their land. And then people who live there all throughout start putting little Chemosh statues in their houses all over the place, specifically inviting that spirit to come. Doesn't it make sense that that region is going to be filled with a whole lot more demonic activity than a region that isn't doing that. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just looking at this as from a kind of a logical standpoint. And I think it's one of the reasons like my father taught missions at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School back in the eighties. And uh, his, one of his uh, most popular classes was called power encounter in the mission field in which he was preparing missionaries for the level of spiritual warfare they're going to run into um, so they wouldn't have to deal with, you know, stuff they didn't have to be dealing with, right? So they could um, 
be prepared and get there uh, for the war they were going to encounter because they are invading a, a territory that has specific kinds of spirits that are inhabiting them. So there's a different kind of spirit that comes in when it's shamanistic versus one that is in, in an, uh, a religious system like Hinduism, which is a religion or another religious system and versus, uh, you know, there are different kinds of spirits in the world. And I don't, honestly, it, in a discipleship setting, I'm not really worried about the principalities and powers that are kind of running the whole show. I'm much more interested at the personal level of helping people walk in personal freedom by essentially what we're doing is like, we need to die to the stuff that is holding us in slavery in, in slavery. And we do that through repentance and we do that through forgiveness. And um, sometimes repentance and forgiveness is all it takes to win a spiritual warfare battle. What do most Christians misunderstand about your ministry and these kind of subjects? Not just talking about spiritual warfare, but the integrated idea that you've presented within a deeper walk. What are the things that most people misunderstand about it? So there's a couple of things. Oh, I should say, first of all, I should point out that I don't actually have to do a whole lot of apologetics most of the time because I only go places I'm invited. <laughs> right. So I don't go to so I'm not constantly having to defend this stuff to, to to people. I've been in those situations. And what I found is that there's almost nothing that I can say that's going to convince them because they have an entrenched worldview system and an entrenched uh thing. And the only thing that I have ever seen convince somebody like that to flip sides is when it happens to their own family and they suddenly need that solution. And I know a lot of people who have secretly left churches like that and gone to Carl Payne and other people to get help yeah. because it wasn't, you know. The solutions weren't working. Those solutions weren't working and they went and they got the help they were looking for because they were dealing with a warfare issue. They just, theology didn't permit Christians to have that kind of a problem. Uh, the other thing that I get pushed back on here is uh, something Dr. Wilder introduced me to. It's called voluntarism. And voluntarism is a, is a philosophy that grew out of the Enlightenment that said the most important thing about the human about a human being is the will. Hmm. So you get to hear the volun, volun's Latin in there. Volun. So, the, uh, uh, it, it, so the Enlightenment started with reason is the most important thing about being human. And that led to the idea that truth is the foundation of life and we all just need to believe true things and everything will be all right. But we pretty quickly figured out that that doesn't actually work. <laughs> like a lot of us believe, can check all the right boxes on what we believe, and we're still getting hammered, you know, in the daily battle. Then, uh, so we said, well, it's willpower. I just need more willpower. And then uh, that'll, that'll do it. So we said, well, believing correct things and making right choices, there it is. That'll take care of everything. Well, does it? <laughs> you know, it's like I, I've been trying to make good choices for, you know, all this all these years. It's not getting much easier. And uh, I, I'm looking at so what we do is we say, well, because of that, we need to add some accountability to make people make good choices. And uh, it's like, does accountability really work? And I think sometimes we we oversell what accountability can actually accomplish in somebody's life. I agree. And then we get to so voluntarism is this, is the will idea. It's this idea that Christianity is about making decisions. And what it did is it, it, it actually led us to reduce really big, glorious concepts to tiny decision-based concepts. So salvation became little more than a decision. Mm. Now, I agree there's a decision involved in becoming a Christian, but we have tended to reduce the entire experience to a decision, and that's it, because that comes out of volunteerism. It comes out of 
you know, it's just a, a matter of choice and then it'll take place. We, uh, so a lot of the pushback I, I get comes from people who are, are locked into a, a view that says beliefs plus choices equal transformation. And I'm here saying actually spirits are involved and attachment is involved and uh, emotional capacity is involved. And there's all these other, and they're like, yeah, that doesn't sound like historic Christianity to me. And to a certain extent, they're right in that recent historic Christianity has been totally voluntarist. It's been totally, you know, this idea of, of uh, reason plus choices is the key to life. Well, let me interject here because you mentioned traditional discipleship um, early on in the book. And you said that traditional discipleship in most churches, um, he said, you said this, you talk about ABCs, again, the ABCs, and you mentioned academics, behavior, church activity. Those, that's the traditional idea of discipleship within our modern Western context, which we have found to be wanting. Today. Right. And I know just in academics, I remember reading Larry Osborne, uh, North Coast community in uh, San Diego, had written a book called Will, Well-Intentioned Pharisees. And in the book, he said, you know, most of our stuff today is just about training people with more knowledge, give them more knowledge, give them the right books, give them reading all the time. He goes, but here's the issue. My parents could barely read, and they were some of the most godly people that I've ever known. But in many of our traditional models today, because it's not about reading the book, it, 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 we, we forget this. We've adopted this kind of rationalistic, modern understanding, and we need to go back. And you, as you said, more recent history has overlooked it. Yet, if I go back to the first century and I see discipleship as becoming like the rabbi, following the rabbi, I don't necessarily, and I want to say I don't see it because you see Paul talking about it, but I think there is a drop off where people now have this massive blind spot to this issue. Why is that? And how do we remedy fixing it? Well, you know, well, this podcast is Apollos named, right? So, you know, you look at this whole idea of early church discipleship and how communal it was. And it's easy to overlook the constant use of group language in Paul's writings, right? We, right, even when he talks about identity in Christ, he's actually stating the identity of the group. We are the elect. We are beloved. We are, you know, uh, you know, this is who we are. We are holy. We are saints, right? This is who we are. And this is part of the idea that my core identity comes from my group is a very biblical idea, right? I am from the tribe of Benjamin. I am an Israelite. I am in Christ. These are my people, are the kingdom people. So our people is what gives us our identity. In our Western culture is so individualized that we have divorced identity from our people, and so one of the things we see in the culture today is we see all these people groups everywhere, right? And, and, and now we see people very clearly getting their identity from who their people are. But the church, I think, has been somewhat lax in this, that we have been less about the, this is who we are as a people and this is how we do things. And uh, we've kind of individualized the identity piece. So talk about that in the other half of identity chapter. There's a lot of issues. You know, this is meant to be an overview book, not a deep dive explanation of every question book. So it's just like, let, this is meant to just, let's just bring all the pieces together. And, and the idea is like, if I am struggling, let's start by taking a look at the model and seeing, do I have any obvious holes in what I've tried so far? 
And that's kind of the idea. Do I have an obvious, like, uh, how am I doing in community? So the other half of the church interview you did with Michael and Jim, right, that, that, that book was somewhat inspirational to my chapter on heart-focused community. In fact, I cite the book and some things in there. So it's a, uh, his, um, so that, that could be a missing piece. Um, but that isn't going to fix a demonic problem, <laughs> right? Or that might be a missing piece, but it doesn't make me biblically literate all of a sudden, right? I do need to be a biblically literate person. That's why we got a chapter on scripture and meditation and, you know, filling your mind with God's word so that I have a biblical worldview. That can be a missing piece. It's just that I know when I was as entrenched in biblical studies as I've ever been, I was also the most depressed I've ever been. Why? Well, for me, the big missing piece was I had no community. I felt all alone in this. Right. So what this does, if we look and say, do I have emotional healing things that I need to address? Do I have spiritual warfare things I need to address? How was my identity coming from my performance and my comparison with other people? Or is my identity really coming from Christ? Now, walking in the spirit, am I trying to do Christian life in the flesh or am I walking in the spirit? You know, scripture, am I thinking scripturally? Am I filling my mind with scripture? And then you go in community, who are my people? Where do I get my identity from as a people group? How does this all work? So the idea here is, you know, it can be overwhelming. Like I could do all of this, you know, I, and I get that. But the idea here is to put it all together in one place so you can see if you're struggling, it may be that you're missing one of these components here or maybe two or three of them. And so it's, it's just meant to say, this is why it's a proven pathway. And that, uh, you know, when I was a path, pastor, I looked back, I said, who out of the seven years I spent as a senior pastor, who noticeably went deeper in their walk with God? And what I found was that every one of them were people who had gone into an emotional healing journey at some level to begin dealing with some of the problems in their past. Most of them had ended up dealing with some spiritual warfare stuff as a result of that. But uh, they didn't, but they went pursuing a deeper walk with God and found that these were the obstacles in the way that needed to be resolved. And that's what we're seeing. When you talk about emotional healing, um, I'm still of that. I've been around long enough to, when you hear the term inner healing or emotional healing, people roll their eyes. Um, but yet you're seeing now such a massive, a, a lot of desire for that trauma, COVID, uh, all of these things have brought it out. I've had, I think it was Michael Hendricks that said trauma is the new, kind of like the new um, harvest field. That's what, because we see so many people that are in trauma. So, mental illness is at the highest it's it's perhaps been, I mean, in, in most recent history, the highest we've ever seen in our lifetime. That was, but there's a lot of reasons for it. We have much more diagnoses. We're more familiar. Um, how do we help other Christians see the biblical framework for this healing aspect simply because in acts you don't see someone get saved and then suddenly let's have a conversation about the pain that was in your past when you were a child this is more of a modern notion but but what you do see is a lot of spiritual work like uh, tertullian if you go back to tertullian i mean he he regularly talks about you know, everywhere Christians go, we're casting out the demons that you guys are inviting in through your pagan worship. And, uh, and uh, like Clinton Arnold has pointed out, the didache uh, had deliverance built into the discipleship process because it was just expected. You're coming out of this pagan past. We're going to have to get rid of some demons. And so that's one of the reasons why. And I think one of the reasons why it was more common in some cultures than others is that those cultures were more, more overtly occult. And so building that practice in what I'm 
what I'm one of the reasons I talk about this is freedom is that we're talking about identifying what has me in slavery and how do I break free. Understanding that freedom might be something I'm working on for the rest of my life, but at least I know what I'm working on. Mm. And the uh, same thing with identity. It's like I can find out my identity in Christ in 15 minutes, but I, you know, I'm going to spend the rest of my life learning how to live out of it. Right. And walking in the spirit, same thing. I'll spend the rest of my life studying scripture, learning how to walk in the spirit, growing in that ability, community attachment, and then mission. Same thing. When we go off into all these things are meant to be the foundation for mission. Um, you know, as you know, a lot of missionaries are trying to find their identity from their ministry. You know, a lot of missionaries are stuck because they're in bondage to stuff that's that's sabotaging the work they're trying to do. They're they're or they're trying to do their work in the flesh instead of in the spirit. And or they are they're isolated and they have no community, they're all alone. So you just look at this model and you're like, why, why am I struggling? I'm a pastor and full-time minister. I'm a missionary out on the mission field. I'm doing all this stuff. Why am I struggling? Well, I, this is 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 sometimes it's caused zero freedom issues that haven't been addressed. Sometimes it's because you're you're taking your identity from the wrong things. Sometimes it's because you really don't understand walking in the spirit. So you're 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 forced to do it in the flesh because you don't even know what this looks like. And sometimes it's because of isolation. So the idea behind the, the fish model, right? F the is is uh, the model didn't start with the search for an acrostic, right? It didn't start with the search for an acronym. It's it started with a study of Romans five to eight. All right, and, it, and so you know when you bring up Romans seven right off the bat, I'm like, that's it. That's the heart of the passage we're talking about. And that it, the question I asked a group of like 45 pastors said that the Apostle Paul was going to teach a seminar on the victorious Christian life. What would he say are the three or four most fundamental things that every Christian has to have? in order to experience the abundant Christian life from Romans 5 through 8. So we took that passage to say, he's got his chance to tell people this. You don't need the law to live a victorious Christian life. You need grace. So what does grace mean for Paul? Well, it means dying to things that keep us in bondage and keep us in slavery. It means being raised to a new identity and then and the spirit of, you know, uh, of the Abba, you know, spirit of adoption within us so that we have this intimacy with God that can call out Abba Father. And what we missed the first time we went through here was the collective nature of it. And so we were like, okay, we need freedom, we need identity, we need life in the spirit, and you can live a victorious Christian life. But I missed, because I was so Western and so individualized, the community aspect of what Paul was talking about in Romans 5 to 8 as well. And you notice that one of the fruits that comes out of that in Romans 5 to 8 is that you suffer well if you do these things. Mm -hmm. So again, Jim Wilder introduced me to the idea of maturity as suffering well, the ability to suffer well. And so infants don't suffer well at all. Children are learning to, to adults should be able to suffer better than infants and children, right? Parents are now helping other people learn how to suffer well. So on, you know, you get the idea elders are, are, are filling those holes and those gaps and having a lot of elders help can't, can't carry the weight that we all carry in our daily lives in our ministry lives and other things. There's just so much emotional weight we all have to deal with, and, and elders are there to help us with that so that we're not all alone with all of that weight. So that's where that's where the fish came from, right? It came from, I die with Christ, I'm raised with Christ, I'm born of the Spirit, I'm now brought in community. Let's see, are there holes here that uh, in my discipleship that may be explaining why I'm struggling so much? You, you have talked about a lot of stuff today. You have gone through so many different aspects. You've, you've fielded every question that I've, I've given to you. Um, 
there's a lot that's there. I mean, any one of these could be extrapolated on or expounded on over a, a great deal of time, which you have done. You've written other books about it. You have classes that are developed on this. What are the things, though, that are driving you right now? The questions that are kind of put the Holy Spirit is just poking you to go, I need to understand this. And I'm, I'm, I still haven't grabbed a hold of it yet. So I have a friend uh, who talks about the unexplained box that we all have. And uh, you mentioned that she was a, uh, you mentioned that in the book, the unexplained box. Yeah. I think that all of us have unexplained things about life that we haven't figured out. So one of the things I often say is that God created a world that is so complicated that none of us can figure it all out. And he did that on purpose so that we all have to live by faith. Atheists, agnostics, Muslims, you know, Christians, everybody has to live by faith because none of us can figure it all out. So we all have to decide what we're going to trust. And some people say, well, I'm going to trust science and that's it. I'm not going to trust anything else. Some of us like, I'm going to trust Muhammad and nothing else, right? So I'm going to trust the Bible and nothing else. So it's like, what am I going to trust? And God is always like, trust me. Out of all the voices out there, out of all the things you could be, he's like, trust me, do things my way, and uh, come together. So I find in my own journey what I I have struggled to build the kind of community that we talk about in heart in, in the uh, other half of church. Uh, I'm better than I used to be, but that has been a bit of a challenge for me. I began to realize early on that I had very uh, – uh, my attachment style was very dismissive and that's something I've had to overcome uh, and working on. And so I tell people all the time that I write these books first and foremost for me, because it's what I am learning in trying to be a better Christian, right? It's what I'm learning and trying to figure out why am I struggling with this? What is getting in the way here? And, uh, and then in that process, I share with other people what I've been finding helpful and what I've seen be helpful for me and what I've seen be helpful in the lives of other people. And I'm like, and if you don't like it, I'm like, my own thing is just, you know, <laughs> come up with a better one, right? Come up with a better model. You know, it's just, uh, I'm not, a, I'm not trying to declare war on any, anybody. I'm just trying to lay out a path here that says there are thousands of people who will tell you that this stuff has helped them. You and I were talking about your ministry started originally by Bubik, and yeah. I, I had met him, and I remember asking him questions. I was a college student at the time, and I remember he was getting phone calls from all over the world at that time. Yeah. People were calling in because the traditional models that they were seeing were not answering these questions, and it made me stop and and really recognize that there is something that the Bible talks about that we in the West have dismissed. And we get increasingly uncomfortable. But as it starts to swell, as we see these issues start to grow, it becomes more imperative that we do understand and, and go back, and I, I, it sounds strange, to our foundation of understanding our, our faith is rooted in many of these, I mean, it's rooted in Christ, obviously, in the Word of God, but these are things that the Word of God talks about that we really don't know what to do with today. Yeah, in the chapter on the Bible in there, and again, most of these chapters, I actually have written a whole book about that chapter. <laughs> so that's why these things are just meant to kind of collect it together and give the model. But like the uh, chapter on the Bible is an example of that. And uh, we talk about creation theology, and I've got the WWW of, uh, of uh, uh, well, that, that came from, 
worship worldview and warfare, right? Yeah, uh, it was uh, the whole thing is our worldview. We have a creation based worldview that gives us uh, um, the idea of worship, warfare, and wisdom. Okay. And where, where that came from was in my days as a PhD student in Old Testament. By the way, I don't have a PhD in Old Testament, I have a doctor of ministry. I'd be careful because it sounds like I have a demon degree, but I have a. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, um, but I did all of the work for my uh, PhD Old Testament, except for the, uh, you know, the the dissertation at the end, and like one, I had just a couple more classes, but essentially ran out of money and time and other stuff, and I just had to make the change. So I say all this to go, and one of the conversations we always ask is, is there a center to the Bible? Now I had Walt Kaiser. You went to Gordon Conwell, you know. Oh, this is why you talk about the promise. Yes, yes. I, I, that's why uh, I loved it. I went finally somebody's talking about the promise because I, I. Yeah, I, yeah. I got to meet. I mean, Dr. Kaiser and a couple. He, it's weird. He autographed my Bible. Well, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> it's I know. The archaeological I, I, study Bible, but his promise plan theology. You talk about that within the the five yeah. fingers. No, I, I feel like I was uh, kind of a trinity during the golden age of their Old Testament studies. I had John Salehammer teaching literary interpretation oh. of the Bible. I had, uh, you know, Walt Kaiser teaching theology. I had McComiskey, Dennis McGarry. Barry, I was Barry Beitzel's TA, you know, the Moody Bible Atlas. I had, uh, um, and so part of my job was to teach the first year Hebrew students to get them ready for Dennis McGarry's class, you know, advanced classes on Hebrew. And uh, there's more I could list, list off because we had all these visiting profs and stuff too. But it, it we used to discuss, because Kaiser made such a big deal about the promise, the question was, is that really the centerpiece? Is this, you know, what's the center of the Bible? And, uh, the, 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 and for people in the academic circle, the debate was, you know, salvation history versus wisdom literature, because there's no salvation history in the wisdom literature. So how do, you know, we need a center that can unite those two things. And so the WWW came out of those kind of academic conversations, actually. And my proposed solution was that the centerpiece of the Bible is walking with God. It is worship, life as worship, and that we are created to have a relationship with God in which we walk with him. And so walking with God brings together salvation, theology, and wisdom, because wisdom teaches me how to walk with God and salvation theology teaches me everything God did to make it possible for me to walk with him. And so that was the idea. So then we live in a context, however, spiritual warfare, Paul Galatians one, four calls this a present evil age. I did. We, you know, my dad used to say after knowing God, you know, the next most important thing is understanding your enemy who, who's out here trying to take you out in this battle. Well, that's because this is the context in which we live. It's not an optional you know, elective. And then wisdom is the idea of how do we, therefore, what is the light that God gives us in this dark world to show us how to live our lives? That's what wisdom is about. He does that through scripture and the Holy Spirit. So think of scripture as the frame and the Holy Spirit as the flame. (laughs) I'm sorry. I, I, I used to teach junior high Bible. That's a lot of this stuff. That's the best part of it. Those are the best teachers, man. Those are the best teachers. Yeah, so it came out of the, uh, but then, and then you get to salvation, and it's like, oh, so what am I going to do about the fact that I, you know, I can't always be wise, I can't always do the right thing, and I can't, I, and I struggle, and I'm getting, you know, defeated, it's like, well, God has created this path of salvation for us, and so that it all comes together, and what I've been trying to do is, is create a simple model that people can use to get a, get a quick handle on the Bible, and say, okay, I get the, I get a, I have a handle, big picture of what's going on here. 
And so that was the idea behind that chapter, just to jumpstart that process. Because um, I was one of those guys, and you strike me, you'd be similar. Like when I was, I grew up going to church, and it felt like every sermon was on one verse. Mm. And it just frustrated me to death. I'm like, I don't care about the one verse. What is the letter of Ephesians about? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. I wanted the big picture. It's like, right. what what was Paul doing? I mean, what is, what's the whole story here, the life of Paul, and how those fits together? I want to you know, but I don't understand it. And like when I taught, I taught um, Old Testament at a Christian college for a few years, and I used to give a, a, a exam to the students like intro exam mm. and it was like 10 question quiz and it questions like which son of david built the temple right would be like a question um who came first moses or abraham right those are the level of questions i didn't have anybody get more than 50 percent of them right ever and this was a christian college largely collecting you know students who've grown up in a, in a denomination and the assumption is they're going to church they must be getting discipled, right? They must be getting discipled. They're not only not getting discipled, they're not even getting basic biblical literacy. Mm. So that's why I'm saying, you know, we've got to do something about all of these things. And that's why I looked at it. It's like, what are the, if I was pointing out, what are the three main things keeping people from a deeper walk with God? I said, number one is biblical illiteracy. It's at an all time high. People just don't know their Bibles. Mm. Two, people don't know the difference between walking in the flesh and walking in the spirit. And if you don't know the difference, what are you going to do? You're going to walk in the flesh. And the third is that they got baggage and bondage issues they don't know how to resolve. And they're just stuck right there. And so that was kind of the idea is like, if we need a system for making disciples that helps people address their baggage and bondage issues that grounds them in this new identity that teaches them the difference between walking in the flesh and walking in the spirit that makes them biblically literate and get, does all this in a, in community. So right now the problem is, you know, every church I know, it talks about discipleship and talks about community. The top priorities for every church I know. It's just that they're using traditional discipleship instead of heart-focused discipleship. And community is defined as we have small groups. But as most of us know, right, but the average small group, I call the small group ministries in most churches their second parking lot. Right? You know, let's just put people in the parking lot. And there's just this assumption now that they're collecting a small group, they're getting discipled. But there's no actual agenda for where we're going to take these people. And the only and what I've seen is that the main things that people make sure they get training in is finances, spiritual gifts, and evangelism. And I'm like, why? Because those are the three that benefit the church the most. <laughs> right? And it is, you know, we're going to make sure that you know how to handle your money because we need you to be a donor. We're going to make sure you know your spiritual gifts because we need volunteers. We're going to make sure that you know how to evangelize because we need you to invite people. And what I find is that those are sort of the non, you know, non-negotiables. We are going to disciple people in these things. And then after that comes biblical literacy. And then after that comes other things. But it's like we like where is the Romans 5 through 8, you know, where we're teaching people how to be spiritual and we're teaching people how to recognize the obstacles getting in the way and how to deal with and resolve those obstacles. Um so that's where that was the impetus for the book. It's like we got to come up with a better model because the factory is broken. How can people learn more about your ministry and follow you? So we are uh, deeperwalkinternational.org is the website. And so that's the hub for all things, right? We just recently started our own podcast. So uh, uh, my daughter is uh, hosting and we're, are, we're starting by going through some of that volunteerism stuff I was talking about earlier. The first four or five podcasts are on that topic. And now we're starting to, to walk through the Deeper Walk book um, a little bit on the podcast 
Um, so that's the easiest way. If people are, have questions about spiritual warfare, they want to like, I, I, you know, I need more on this. Uh, we actually have a free conference with Neil Anderson, Carl Payne, and myself that you can go to our website and watch anytime and see if that helps answer any of the questions or give you a better feel. We're not a counseling ministry. I think the number one thing that happens when I talk about spiritual warfare and emotional healing is like my phone rings off the hook of people saying, will you meet with me? Right. And I, I, I can't, I just have, I, I run a, I run a ministry, but we try to get, you know, people connected to people who've been trained in this so that, uh, because the need way out strips the supply right now. And that's what we're trying to change. We want heart focused discipleship to be the norm in churches everywhere. And so that's what Deeper Walk International is devoted to. Mm. Mm. Well, Marcus, thank you for coming on Apollos Watered. It's been really a delight. It's been very informative and insightful. Thank you for giving of your time and uh, patiently answering all these questions that I've had for you, because there's a lot. We've thrown a lot at you today, but I know we're just... Hey, it's fun. My last interview was 10 minutes long, so this is kind of... <laughs> this is the... <laughs> Can you can imagine the frustration level <laughs> trying to explain what you want to say in 10 minutes. But. Well, we'll have to have you back on for that uh, next book, though, and maybe even delve into this a bit more, because I think there's a lot more that we could talk about. No, that'd be great. Oh, uh, yeah, I have a feeling we we're in the same area. We'd hang out and be friends. This has been fun. All right. Thank you, Marcus. All right. Take care, Travis. I like to talk about drinking from the fire hose on this podcast, but I think that for many of us, these last two episodes might really have felt that way. Many of us don't ever talk about the spiritual realm or spiritual warfare, and I know it can be a sensitive topic for many. I really don't want to sensationalize things, but I also want to make sure to speak to the whole counsel of God's word something that I find too many Christians gloss over and miss. The Bible speaks about these things, and we need to be informed so that we can be free, not fearful. As Marcus said, at the very heart or center of the Bible is the truth of walking with God. God, the very creator of the universe, made us to be with him. But we have a problem, or really three, as Marcus said near the end. We are all too often biblically illiterate. We don't know the difference between walking in the flesh and walking in the spirit. And we often have baggage and bondage issues we aren't even aware of. We need a better model for discipleship. A deeper walk lays out Marcus Warner's approach. We are working on developing our own model for a holistic faith, one that deals both with the felt needs that we all face on a daily basis, but also on the underlying issues that we often don't see. The work that Warner and others like Jim Wilder and Michael Hendricks have done are really informing that work. In the coming weeks, you're going to hear interviews with Alan Noble and Kelly Capick, who flesh this out even more. And we are going to be talking more about the spiritual realm as well with other guests. I am sure many of you have questions about these two episodes. We want to help, so send us your questions. Don't forget to subscribe and leave reviews for the podcast. They really help. Finally, we really need your support, your prayers, sharing the podcast, and yes, financial support too. Most of our ministry is volunteer at this point, and that isn't sustainable in the long run. While we have had incredible growth, we need to increase our overall support base from people like you 
so that we can create resources like the model I just talked about. Would you please pray about how you can support us? Go to apolloswater.org and click the Support Us button. Thank you in advance. I want to thank our Apollos Water team of Kevin, Melissa, Eliana, and Rebecca. Until next time, this is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. Stay watered, everybody.